Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the legislative lawsuit, turkey pardons in time for Thanksgiving, and former Gopher and NFL wide receiver Ron Johnson. But first, allegations of sexual harassment against Senator Al Franken broke late in the week, prompting many to call for him to resign. Los Angeles radio news anchor Leanne Tweeden said Franken sexually harassed her while they both were on a USO tour in the Middle East in 2006. She claimed Franken kissed her without consent and had a picture taken where Franken appears to touch her breast while she sleeps. Franken apologized and said in a statement that the photo was clearly intended to be funny but wasn't, and he says he shouldn't have done it. Tweeden says, I mean, nothing like that is ever funny. I mean, is it funny if if he does that to your sister or your daughter or your wife? Just last month, Franken addressed the issue of harassment when he announced he was redirecting campaign donations from Harvey Weinstein. Franken said at that time, I felt that what he was doing is completely unacceptable. I don't want money from someone who did that. In the wake of Tweeden's allegations against him, Franken has asked for an ethics investigation into the matter and says he'll gladly cooperate, but the damage may have already been done with several high-profile leaders, including Democrats like Senator Amy Klobuchar and Governor Dayton, condemning Franken's actions. Many more are calling for him to resign. Tweeden has said she accepts Franken's apology, but will Minnesotans and Americans do the same? That remains to be seen. Here in Minnesota, just prior to the allegations against Franken, accusations of harassment perpetrated by male lawmakers at the state capitol resulted in several women coming forward to tell their stories, and there have been significant calls for changes in policy. I spoke with Representative Lori Halverson, who has her own story of harassment to share. What compelled you to come forward with your story at this particular time? Um, I think because the... I was surprised at how surprised people were at the um, allegations that had come forward. Um, For many of us uh, who are women who work at the Capitol in a variety of capacities, a lobbyist or a staffer or a member, it's not unusual for us to have these stories. And um, so I wanted to be sure that people know that, that this is extremely commonplace and um, when I told my story, it's um, frankly not a, a remarkable and out-of-the-ordinary experience, I think, for women at the Capitol. I think that needs to be known. If you don't mind specifically, Representative, uh, give me a sense of, of what your story is and for our listeners who may be unfamiliar. Well, sure. Um, since I was elected to the Capitol, I've experienced um, a few inappropriate um things from other lawmakers. That's been my experience. And um, I've had lawmakers make unwanted advances um, uh, toward me, um, talk to me kind of in a romantic way. I'm a grown married woman, mother. (laughs) Um, Not something I was expecting in the workplace. Um, In addition, I was shown a a graphic uh, uh, photograph on somebody's iPhone. one day, and uh, it was an extremely upsetting experience that um, really made me see how uh, sexual harassment is so effective at silencing women and making us uh, doubt our own power and um, doubt our own voice because I just felt so embarrassed and ashamed that I was part of that situation that somebody would do that to me. 
um, I kind of didn't want anybody to know, you know, that I would be so disrespected. Um, and, and then I realized it's not my problem. <laughs> um, the fact that I was disrespected is not my fault and not my problem, and I need to let other women know that because I believe other women when they say that they have had similar experiences. The the two specific lawmakers who have been named in the most recent allegations here have been asked from uh, different quarters to step down. It, it doesn't sound like uh, either of them are planning on doing that. I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts are on, on particularly Senator Schoen and Representative Cornish. Um, well, both uh, Senator Schoen and Senator or Representative Cornish have taken strong stands um, to talk about things like um, it was a misunderstanding. Um, Representative Cornish has defended himself by saying that he was trying to have an adult relationship with a woman, but the allegations against him um, clearly do not show adult behavior that respects your partner. <laughs> it shows harassing behavior, and we have to stop conflating those two issues. Um, harassment is not romance or dating, <laughs> and um, as long as people get to excuse their behavior by saying that they didn't know um, or they thought they were um, uh, being flirtatious or romantic, um, we have a real problem. And I also believe um, that removing them uh, from office is um, a fine first step, but it's not the last step. I mean, we can certainly get rid of the people um, who are uh, harming us directly right now. But the fact is, is there is an entire atmosphere, an entire culture that has allowed that to happen and has allowed that to happen for years. And that's what we really need to get at. And we need to get at why this happens. This happens to silence women. Um, and silencing women in power is, is um, something that, that we've all experienced. And it happens... Um, to everybody, and we need to acknowledge that, that we're not just talking about lawmakers when we're speaking out. We're talking about people who work at the Capitol in the capacity of lobbyists, in the capacity of media, in the capacity of um, staff, um, and, you know, our pages. These are all people that we need to create an atmosphere to protect. How do you continue to work in an environment like that and moving forward, knowing that it's as, as rampant as it seems to be, do do lawmakers focus on actually the law and laws when you know that this is happening in the background? Well, um, most of us have known this is happening in the background um, because there are, there are so many stories. Um, and so... Uh, the fact that we get to work for change, um, I think, is, is really positive because at the end of the day, as lawmakers, that's our job. We work for change, and our constituents have asked us to work for change, and, and, and they don't expect this kind of behavior from their elected representatives, and we owe it to the public to make sure that we are a governing, governing body that um, sets high standards for our own behavior and our own relationships, because um, our job is to, to serve the public. And frankly, it is an incredible honor to be able to do this kind of work. Um, and it doesn't change my focus at all in terms of being able to, um, you know, work hard for things that I'm passionate about. Um, so I'm ready to get back to the Capitol and, and, and get to work. And frankly, I feel even more empowered to make sure that um, I am 
you know, using my voice and in part of conversations to make our, our workplace better. Representative, I'm curious, have you heard from supportive men since you've told your story? I have, and I'm, I giggle. I'm just laughing a little bit because um, I was very, very, um, heart, it was very, very heartwarming to me that um, I heard, my husband's actually out of town right now and he saw the, um, the story last night, and I got a very late night um, message from him um, with just, full of support and love, and my brothers have gotten in contact with me, my dad. So that means a lot, that all those people in my life um, hear, understand, and believe. Um, And I've also heard a lot from my colleagues at the Capitol who have said, I believe you, I stand with you, let me know how I can help, which I think is one of the best reactions, because um, this is really the story of the women at the Capitol to tell And um, we really do need our colleagues, both female and male, to make sure that they um, believe us and that they support our efforts to make the workplace stronger and that they're willing to listen about what will make our workplace safer, stronger, and more comfortable um, for everybody who's there. So it's it's been incredibly gratifying to, to see that kind of support. Thank you to my guest, State Representative Lori Halverson, for sharing her story. MNN will have continuing coverage of this story, which feels as though it's just beginning. More Minnesota Matters after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. In what ends a long, contentious, and expensive court battle but doesn't really resolve the issue, the Minnesota Supreme Court this week upheld Governor Mark Dayton's veto of the legislature's operating budget, ruling lawmakers have access to sufficient reserve funds to keep the House and Senate operating until the legislature goes back into session February 20th. MNN's Bill Werner has been covering this story since the dispute began. That was back when the special session wrapped up at the end of May. Bill, this court fight basically began a dispute over tax cuts, right? Yes, Scott, that is the way it started. Republicans did not have confidence that the governor would sign the tax cut bill that he agreed to, so they put in what they called an insurance policy in that legislation, and a furious Governor Dayton signed it, alleging legislative treachery to force his hand, and in retaliation, he vetoed the legislature's operating funds, saying he would call a special session to restore them only if Republicans agreed to rescind several just-enacted tax cuts plus two other measures. Republicans sued the governor saying Dayton violated the separation of powers clause in the Minnesota Constitution. Well, the Supreme Court sidestepped the fundamental issue of whether Dayton's move was unconstitutional because he tried to force the legislature to do what he wanted by cutting off money for the legislature to operate. The justices said they didn't need to settle that issue because the House and Senate have enough money to operate until they go back into session in February. At that point, presumably lawmakers can restore their own funding, and if the governor vetoes it again, then they could override, or at least try to do that. Shortly after the high court ruling came out, top lawmakers voted to redirect reserve funds to keep the legislature operating for a while. House Speaker Kurt Dowd. The $20 million does not get us very far. Um, It'll get us into session. Uh, We probably can't make it to the end of session on that that level of funding. I haven't looked at those numbers, but um, I believe we probably wouldn't be able to make it till the end of the legislative session. So uh, we will need to resolve this in the legislative session, and, and, uh, you know, we hope... uh, 
that the governor will will find some newfound respect for the legislature, and, and I'm not optimistic that will happen, unfortunately. Um, as I said, this governor is uh, probably the most partisan person that I've ever worked with, and, and um, to take a legislative session where we had so many victories and so many bipartisan victories where we just accomplished so much together um, and then completely uh, you know, discredit it with this action, I think, is, is just really disrespectful and disingenuous. Earlier in the week, the governor accused Republicans of misrepresenting the legislature's financial position. They got enough money. This has been clear all along. I mean, I don't know why they're continuing with this kind of obfuscation, except that they took this position and they're not going to back off it. But they got enough money from the, in the LCC for fiscal year 18 and then next year fiscal 19 uh, to operate until they go back into session. At that point, they can remedy the situation. I don't know why they continue to... Uh, portray themselves as, as financially destitute when they're, when they're not. The governor accuses Republicans of wasting taxpayer money on an extended court battle. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka disagrees. No regrets. That was yeah. the right thing to do. We, yeah. if, if, if you don't stand up for the legislative branch and the power that we've been given, and both you saw Democrats and Republicans united about that, uh, then, then we back down and, and governor and all future governors have more power than they've ever had before. The governor contends the high court affirmed his veto authority but warns the tax cuts Republicans insisted on will jeopardize Minnesota's future financial stability. And he says because Republicans found money to continue operating the legislature, there's no reason for them to return to the bargaining table. Republicans say Minnesotans have been overtaxed and they deserve to get some of it back. We talked with Hamlin University Professor David Schultz about this week's Supreme Court ruling. Is it a decision or is it not a decision? It's a sort of decision by the Minnesota Supreme Court that on the face of it, it, it again upholds the governor's line item veto, but at the end of the day, really punts on, on the, the serious constitutional issues here by saying that, again, because the legislature has enough money now to be able to um, exist until they get to session in February, the court's going to uphold the line item veto based upon a plain language reading of the, um, of, of, of the, of the Constitution. It didn't come out unequivocally and say that the light item veto was constitutional, um, but it really sort of said that because the money is available to the legislature, they'll be able to survive. The court is, is, the, is, is the spot of point of last resort in these kind of disputes, mm-hmm. and if the court declines, how do we get any sort of clarity, or don't we? We don't get clarity, and I think that's part of the problem with this decision. We now start to get a fundamental constitutional question like this, you know, framed in the sense of may the governor use his line item veto to basically um, um, shut down the state legislature or to eliminate all the appropriations for the legislature. Um, the court, the court is, is required to address these issues. That's Hamlin University professor David Schultz. And Scott, the professor predicts the 2018 legislative session will be ugly, to say the least. Because there is little love lost now between Republicans and Governor Mark Dayton. Thank you, Bill. Yes, that's right. And we'll, of course, be there in February for the session to cover every moment of it. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Students at Cedar Riverside Community School in Minneapolis got to see firsthand this week one of Minnesota's turkeys up for this year's Thanksgiving presidential pardon. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. 
For many of these immigrant students, this was quite a shock, and the expressions on their faces were priceless. This week, the Minnesota Turkey Growers Association traveled to Cedar Riverside, which is located in the heart of the Cedar Riverside Plaza housing complex, to spread some cheer ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Joining me now is Nicole Crumry with the Turkey Growers Association. Nicole, can you share with us a little bit about what's behind these classroom visits? Absolutely. Um, So not only is it a great way to promote um, the national turkey event that um, is happening in Washington, D.C. with a Minnesota farmer going and bringing two of his birds to um, be named the national turkey uh, for Thanksgiving, but it's also a great way for us um, as the Minnesota turkey growers to go into classrooms and talk about um, why um, the turkey industry is important in Minnesota. You know, from your visit uh, for yesterday, you were at a, a primarily uh, an all-Somalian school, and uh, was there any takeaways or anything that surprised you from yesterday's visit? You know, I I was just really happy about how excited the kids were. You know, um, when talking to the teachers, um, she said that they, they typically don't get an experience like that where they're able to see um, something other than maybe just some birds outside. So, it honestly brought me um, great joy that we were able to um, give those students an experience that they might not have otherwise had. And I understand uh, that you, like you had said earlier, that uh, this year's uh, official turkey uh, that's going to be pardoned is coming from Minnesota. Yes, that is correct. So there is a farmer in Alexandria who is raising um, the national Thanksgiving flock. And um, coming up this next week, he will be traveling with two of those turkeys and they will go to D.C., And can you tell us a little bit about this? I also want to incorporate, I know a 4-H group from the Alexandria area has been really uh, key in uh, getting these birds ready. Can you explain that to us? Absolutely. So um, five Douglas County 4-H members have been working with this flock. And they they originally were given this opportunity by participating in the 4-H Science of Agriculture um, challenge. And so with that, they did a research study on different types of beddings and what bedding um, is most uh, beneficial for turkeys and turkey growers. And so um, through doing that event, they were able to play second in the Minnesota competition. Um, And with that, they were given the opportunity to help raise these birds. So with that, they have been with these birds since um, since they hatched, and they've just been acclimating them to different sounds, um, noises. Um, they've been able to interact with them so that once they get to D.C., they are pretty, they're pretty acclimated to whatever um, D.C. will throw at them. Cedar Riverside fifth grade teacher Michelle Jacobs coordinated the visit with the Turkey Growers Association. Miss Jacobs, how did this come about? Well, I was at the um, MEA, Minnesota Education Association, um, Educators Association, and um, I tend to go through the vendors and I just sign up (laughs) for anything in the sense of the opportunity to give our students uh, the opportunities to have different people come or win tickets to go to different places um, just so that they can expand their horizons instead of just being stuck here in in the plaza. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what what kind of surprised you today from the visit? Um, 
the excitement of my students. Um, they're used to um, seeing the pigeons outside or other kinds of birds, but the excitement of seeing such a large bird, almost a 50-pound bird, um, they just had no concept. And, um, and then just, um, yeah, that's pretty much the excitement of that. And um, and then having an empathy and um, um, just a kindness to animals is what I'm really trying to get across to them. And, you know, um, for some, when you think about agriculture, rural Minnesota, and we're right here in the heart of, of Minneapolis, and I think oftentimes, and, and I apologize if I'm putting words in anyone's mouth, but you think of a turkey, like my nephew, go to the grocery store and get it. Mm-hmm. They don't realize mm-hmm. the process. Was that important to that message? Yeah, I think so. Um, just the idea that they were like, what? The, the muscle is the meat that we eat. I mean, just that whole process, they don't understand that. And, um, I mean, they understand that milk comes from cows, but they just don't have that concept there. Uh, they've never been really on a farm. Uh, we were at a petting zoo a couple of weeks ago, and they were just enthralled. They had never seen goats and llamas and um, and mules, so they were just like, you know, it's just so different for them, you know, locked in the middle of the cities and they don't have that opportunity to see the agriculture. And Minnesota's um, so agricultural minded, but there's so many inner city kids that have just have never had that concept or been exposed to that. And so you might be wondering, were the kids paying attention during the turkey program? I'd say hands down yes, and I'd give them all an A+. Today when I saw turkey, it started started gobbling. The first time it gobbled, it scared everyone. Some turkeys grow very quick, and they're called, the boys are called toms, the girls are called hens, and the babies are called poults. Um, today I learned about turkeys and who started the, the, um, that, that pardon turkey, which president started it. Yeah, the pardoning. And I learned that boys, boy, um, boy turkeys are called toms, girl turkeys are called hens, and baby turkeys are called bolts. And when they're showing off, they do a strut and they are awesome animals back to you scott thank you tasha minnesota matters returns after this Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. While the college football regular season is close to winding down, the NFL season is hitting the second half stretch run. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with former Gopher and NFL wide receiver Ron Johnson to talk Gophers and Vikings on Minnesota Matters. Well, Ron Johnson, you cover both college and professional football here in the Twin Cities, obviously on the national level as well when you're talking about the National Football League. You're the host of the P.J. Fleck television show or one of the hosts here in the Twin Cities. And so let's start at the college scene. And we don't want to get too specific, but 
What do you think in general terms of where P.J. Fleck is taking this gopher program? You're a former gopher star yourself. Well, I mean, there's two sides of it, to be honest. I mean, one thing you look at with P.J. Fleck is if I was on his team, how would I respond to him? If I was a senior, to be 100% honest, I don't know. I don't know how it would take the change because I remember when Coach Mason was thinking about going to Ohio State and then we had changes and then my receivers coach changed my senior year. I didn't really like the the one thing I liked about that receivers coach is he didn't come in saying I'm gonna make you great. He knew I had come off of you know 1,200 yard season, a 61 catch season, 11 touchdown season. So he didn't try to change much. But when the head coach changes, it's a little bit different. And so I don't know. So that's one thing. But as a freshman, sophomore, junior, and Mason did ask those freshmen, sophomores, and juniors when he finally um, decided to stay at Minnesota or Ohio State didn't bring him in. Um, you know, he asked them, hey, do you want me to be your head coach? And so that was one thing that I look at with P.J. Fleck is he's done a great job of explaining these players. I didn't you didn't pick me. Mm-hmm. I picked you. So I know it's going to be a tough transition. I know it's like it's like a stepdad coming in. You know, mom's been here. OK, who is this guy? So he's done a great job of that. So I would say his first immediate change in his culture and trying to get it developed is one, just getting to know each player. He keeps talking about he's a sixth grade social studies teacher. So he understands everybody has their own way of, of, of listening and learning. Quickly, let's tap into your NFL knowledge. You're a former NFL wide receiver yourself. Are you surprised the Vikings are where they are at this point of the year? No, they're built to win as far as the defense goes. They're they're number two in turnovers. They're number three in third down defense. Um, Everson Griffin was on a tear until he got hurt. One sack in every single game hadn't been done um, in like since like the '60s or '70s. I think I forgot who did it, but that's one of those things where like Everson and Daniil Hunter and Brian. I mean, Daniil Hunter had a 12 and a half sack season last year, and then all of a sudden Ev, Ev is already at 10. So that's that's one of those things where you look at this defense, and then you got Xavier Rhodes, uh, who's a shutdown corner, but then you have Trey Waynes out of Michigan State who has not allowed a 100-yard receiver yet this season. I mean, other than the one touchdown, one-handed by the one kid from uh, Washington who was a practice squad guy who had a, made a <laughs> ridiculous play that Odell Beckham probably would have to make. And then you look at the Ravens game, that touchdown was a comeback touchdown. Other than that, Trey Waynes has not given up big plays this year. He hasn't had the pass interferences of the past. And then we, and we don't even have to – I mean, Harrison Smith goes Oof. unsung, and he's the best safety in, in the NFL right now. So they're built to win games. Very good. Good to see you. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's Ron Johnson and Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.